Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. Hello, everybody. We are Two Moms No Fluff. My friend Alma Schneider is here, and I'm Iris Miller. We are going to share with you another interesting episode about our life with our kids with disabilities. And we hope that uh, this would be informative both for parents uh, that are friends to the journey and for the general community, everyone who is an ally and a friend to people with disabilities and their families. Welcome, welcome to the people that are here for the first time. We're so happy to have you. And Alma, my friend, you want to introduce the topic? Yes, I will. Thank you, Iris. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to be talking about how our kids communicate, and that can mean many different things for all kinds of people and all kinds of children. And we are going to be focusing on how to be on the other end of our kids' communication. So how to deal with the different ways that our kids communicate. So this this episode is really really targeted towards our allies and people who are family members and friends of people who communicate perhaps in a different way or in you know or or communicate in a way that you've never experienced before. So let's get started. Let's yeah. just jump right in. Um, I, uh, I think, Alma, that uh, one of my uh, greatest like kind of challenges at the very beginning with uh, my daughter, Karen, was the fact that we're like, wow, she won't be able to talk. Like, how does a person exist without being mm-hmm. able to say what they need, what they want, uh, what's going on with them? It, it was like a very kind of like primal like threat on on our quality yeah. of life and it was like very very fast uh, um, you know after uh, we understood that uh, that's the kind of a future that she's going to be like non-verbal that mm-hmm. she actually can communicate with such great ease and there's so many other ways in which we were able to communicate uh, with her and that she was able to communicate with us the real challenge was that society is not ready mm-hmm. for a new form of communication. And uh, I think that uh, all in all, with all modesty, I'll try to be modest, but my daughter is a person really worthwhile communicating with. She's mm-hmm. bilingual. She mm-hmm. has traveled the world extensively and experienced many different cultures and uh, countries and views. She's seen, uh, I think... Uh, dozens of musicals, ballets, operas, uh, concerts. She has been to museums all around the world, probably many more than many other people, definitely at their age. And yet, (laughs) you know, she cannot tell you about it in the way that you're used to listening. So people really need to stop and make an effort and not everybody is able or willing to stop and make the effort. And that's, I think, where our episode today is going to kind of pause it. And we'll talk a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, how how to do that with uh, a person that doesn't speak 
and how to communicate with them and also to communicate with our kids that do speak but have a different way to use language. Back to you, Alma. We said, perfectly said. So, it, you know, it is interesting as it often is with our episodes that, you know, um, you have a child who is non-speaking um, and I have um, a child who does speak but speaks uh, in a different kind of way. So um, I'm, I'm just reminded as you're talking, I'd like to talk about a story that's more recent than when they were babies. We'll maybe go back and forth with our, with our ages here. We won't go in chronological order. But when my son is bar mitzvah, we wanted Iris's daughter to, to participate. And my younger daughter was going to be reading a poem. And we asked um, Iris if her daughter, Karen, would be interested in reading a poem with Asa. So that was, I'm going to be honest, not only did we want our beloved Karen to participate because Iris's family were so close with them, but I also wanted to blow the minds of the people who were attending <laughs> the bar she, her daughter can communicate. She just did it with a Toby device that Iris will tell you more about. But it was so powerful to have Asa, my daughter, and Karen alternate verses in a poem. Um, but that, in, that poem was, was spoken, quote unquote, in very different ways. But the poem was, the poem was, was, uh, was given to, the, to the, all the participants, all the members um, of the synagogue who came. And it was so beautiful. And it just, you know, it was another way to be inclusive that, you know, some, it, had I not known Iris's family, I, it might have occurred to me to even ask someone such a thing because I didn't even know it was possible. So having known the family and known that Karen could, you know, communicate with this device, um, it allowed me to be able to say, wow, she can participate in a way that most people participate in bar mitzvahs by getting up there and, and, you know, sharing a poem or some spoken word. So that, you know, I just wanted to throw that out there. It, I was just reminded of that, of that wonderful experience a few years ago. That was a wonderful experience. And I have to say, this was the most inclusive bar mitzvah party I've ever attended and bar mitzvah <laughs> ceremony, uh, even more so. And uh, I think uh, if anyone is ever considering a transition ceremony for their kids, just call Alma. Like she <laughs> has done it all. It just, uh, it was beautiful and it was touching and uh, friends of Lincoln's all uh, with different abilities and talents were a part of it. And it was just really, really touching and beautiful. And uh, I, till today, like sometimes we would go into a store and Karen would tell me, oh, that's Lincoln's song. And I'm like, what, what? <laughs> it would be oh. playing in the background. She would recognize the lyrics. We had like, a song ah, from right. Dear Evan Hansen performed by the acapella group from the high school, which was really nice. <laughs> anyway, so I think that uh, all in all, uh, it's almost to me like, cheating right now because Karen has a communication device. This is so simple. The the whole uh, language is so obvious. If just if you would just wait a second, you'll see on the tiny screen facing you what she was just saying. And it's very self-explanatory. You don't have to make a serious effort. The, the magical thing used to be on the days we didn't have a, a communication device or, or times that we are out today and she's without the communication device and how she would like 
really say complete sentences without any words. And the thing is that um, Karen was really unique in the sense that she kind of came up with her own language. She was so eager to, to communicate. But for many, many times, like uh, people would find it very, very odd to see kind of our interaction because I needed to kind of be up close to her face to really see the eye movement because she would say many words with eye movement and it's like this would be true love and this up and down like this is crazy and uh, the differences are very minute and if you don't really look at her eyes you can't see what she's saying so um for us so she spoke uh, with her just for the people listening so she was actually able to communicate with different eye movements and you learned these eye movements and what they meant so it really it took two people obviously to to be in this um, yes yes our our communication and I think for for many other parents of kids with disabilities it's just uh, you really have to develop a whole different set of skills uh, even something small like pupils dilating can mean a world of difference uh, and a parent that is with the child a lot would notice that the the tricky thing is to to come to a physician and say, not right now, not this, not, uh, not that, because of uh, the reaction that you and only you can see in your child. And uh, we, we did uh, with, uh, with Karen some kind of like odd things that <laughs> basically led to her incredible communication skills. One of them was that we did elimination communication, in me which means that she was not using diapers. And we were able to kind of read when she needed to use the the bathroom and we would have this tiny kind of like baby potty that I would hold between my legs and I'll sit her on my legs and she would pee on cue kind of. And I think that uh, one time we actually went to a developmental pediatrician and uh, they were like talking and wanting to check her. And I said, not right now, she needs to pee. And it was like the developmental pediatrician and five students in the university that were observing the session. And they all looked at me like this lady has lost it, but okay. And they were like, we don't know what you want. I undressed her, put her on the potty, she peed, and they were like blown away. They have how never old? seen- How old was she? She how was old? like nine months, 10 months old, like at the very beginning wow, of this year. that's incredible. And, and they were like, we have never seen that magic trick before. How have you done that? You know, it was like, really beyond words for them i'm and sure it's beyond it, words for me i mean it's incredible but uh, but that was the basic of like learning how to read karen's communication it's like learning mm -hmm. those physiological reactions to internal yes. things that helped with all of the other out external stimulations and how she reacted mm -hmm. to them and what those kind of reactions meant and creating words to those reactions Anyway, back to Karen. So like at the end of the day, she had a, a way to communicate. It was just convincing the other people that I'm not just staring into her face and inventing what right. she's saying. So many times, so many years, it was like really people were thinking that I'm crazy. I'm hallucinating that my daughter is cognizant and understands what, what I'm asking her and that I am making choice for her, pretending that she's choosing for herself. Now, as you know, because uh, we had the pleasure of having Ayla, your daughter, working with Karen, you know that it is possible for other people to learn and learn well how Karen communicates and know sometimes better than we do as parents what she's saying. It's just a matter of like 
changing your perspective and understanding that in many ways you're in a new country with a new language and there mm-hmm. is a language but you need to learn it <laughs> in order right. to understand it and um, my daughter was in high school at the time and she learned how to communicate with Karen in, in her way, eyes in ways that were sometimes smoother and faster than than we did because their kind of fields of interest were things that were I, I guess out of bound for us and that's uh, that's where they had their own kind of uh, areas of communication that were foreign to us but at the end of the day um what what I, I want to say it's like you need to kind of approach the individual with a disability with uh, some humility and curiosity because you'll mm-hmm. be surprised at what you will find be beyond the maybe the apparent disability beyond the apparent lack of ability there's mm-hmm. a world there and uh, for those who are courageous enough to approach a person with a disability and to try to communicate I promise you you won't regret it yeah yeah and there are a lot of assumptions made when we see someone who looks different who may be using a wheelchair or might not have control over their muscles or whatever Or, or and do not you know speak from their mouth it's it's I think more often than not people either are you know afraid they don't want to offend they don't or they just assume that they cannot communicate or that they're cognitively impaired and that is clearly not the case for so many people and definitely not for Karen who now is able to speak with a device um, she's you know, that's audible you know you listen to it and her talk talking and she's got a lot to say and she's she's very profound and she's she's got a lot of you know ideas and she's she's cognitively you know she's a real teenager I don't always want to hear what she's a teenager (laughs) yeah she's a real teenager so can you talk a little bit just about the Toby device what that is and how she she um communicates via The Toby device. Yes. So um, in, in our situation and uh, in the situation of many other people with disabilities, uh, they need to use an augmentative communication device to help uh, kind of bridge the, the barrier. Uh, they understand language. They know how to encode language. They just need something to help them bridge the lack of physical motor ability uh, to speak. So uh, uh, some people that have uh, some degree of manual dexterity or any other control over other organs in their body, it can be the, their foot or uh, even a knee or a shoulder, they can operate something that, uh, that is more kind of mechanical that you can control physically with a click method to, to produce a language. Sometimes it's a symbol based or in Karen's uh, situation, she's actually using a keyboard and is typing on a keyboard. But uh, in our specific situation, because Karen's physical ability is so affected by her uh, brain injury that she cannot, um, cannot move or move effectively any other muscles of her body but her eyes, she's using a computer that is responsive to her eye gaze. So basically at the bottom of the computer, uh, and this is uh, the Toby uh, Dynavox uh, computer, Uh, at the bottom of it, there's a, a row with cameras. The cameras create that uh, red light effect that you would see in old style pictures that you take a picture and someone would have the, those red eyes. That's basically a reflection from the retina of her eyes. And with that reflection, the uh, Toby device can read where her gaze is aiming towards. 
and she would like, let's say, point at the letter uh, B and then it would like circle, make a small circle there to show her that it's choosing that letter and uh, she can either gaze at it or for some other people, the method of selection can be blink and she can blink and collect the letters and slowly type down whole sentences. As her parents, sometimes those sentences are not very complimentary and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, she, she does have a lot to say and uh, she's um, like, you know, using that uh, for, especially in situations that uh, I guess won't help like certain names of people, products, uh, song names, things that are harder for us to understand with just uh, a simple eye movement because she can communicate with great ease with us also without that. It's communicating with people that are outside of the family or her close circle of eight. And for people that, um, you know, of situations that she needs to give something that is very specific and uh, hard to describe uh, just with like her eye movement. The At the end of the day, um, with this, we discovered kind of a whole internal world that was almost hidden from us. Suddenly it was much easier. We did uh, speak about uh, dreams. I mean, like midnight dreams, not dreams for the future and uh, dreams and uh, things that were very abstract before, but it gave another kind of level of uh, ease in that sort of communication. Um, anything else you wanted me to say about um, Just that it's that it's so she will spell something out and then when it's finished it speaks it it audibly the, the yes. device speaks it. so she's it's as though she's talking um there's a voice a feminine sounding voice that speaks that speaks yeah. her sentences yes um it's a so child's voice the the only tricky thing about it is as you can imagine it's much much slower than typing on a keyboard and uh, as much as we love the Toby and love Karen's ability to communicate, I have to admit that at the end of the day, for other 13-year-old girls, it is very hard to stay and slowly waiting for the punchline of a joke, no matter how funny it is. <laughs> and this is where, even though Karen has this ability now to kind of freely communicate, that, uh, that there's still a lot of kind of... Uh, societal barriers and yeah. many many kids a don't have the patience b don't have the um, exposure to know how to kind of communicate with another teenager that uh, is communicating in a different way and mm -hmm. uh, that that's where things are becoming a little bit more complicated for us and they are a little bit more complicated for us obviously when we're out and about she has her wheelchair she has the communication device kind of attached on a mount in front of her and mm -hmm. uh, she's kind of ready able and willing to communicate but the people that encounter us by kind of, again, 99.9% .9 of the times would refer to us, the parents, right. as they're talking about her, totally cognitive, able, and willing to answer for herself or to the aides that are out with her. And this is one of my goals for today is to repeat the request and the suggestion. If you are seeing a person with a disability, even if they're blind and they have a, a guide with them or they're uh, deaf or hard of hearing and they have an interpreter that is next to them, 
talk to the person with the disability. Mm -hmm. If you have a question, a suggestion, something to information to share, talk to them, not to the person who's there to help them. They'll use the person who's there to help them if they need them. But otherwise, please talk to the person. Yeah. It's about being patient. It's about being patient and um that, you know, I, I, I would imagine, you know, myself included, if I encountered someone and I spoke to them and they didn't respond immediately, I would think, okay, they, they can't speak. So I'll ask the, the person who's with them. But it sounds like there is, we need to wait, you know, take a pause and see if they respond in their own time before we ask someone else. As well. Yeah, and, and we're not cruel about it. We will tell you, uh, yeah, she, she'll answer, give her just a second to type or something right. like that. We'll, right. we'll give the cues. But uh, at the end of the day, this is with the communication device. I wanted to mention that a lot, a lot of people with various level of disabilities and even like with uh, various level of cognitive disabilities, they can still answer for themselves very mm -hmm. well if it's yes, no questions. Mm -hmm. So um, try, if you can, to phrase your question, not as a open-ended kind of let's have right. a discussion, but I, uh, try to ask yes, no questions. And then it's very, very easy for people, even with very significant disabilities, to reply and to kind of have their choice and their voice heard in this communication. That's, that's very helpful. That's really helpful because yeah, it makes sense, you know, to have to respond in these long, in a long essay form is going to take a long time. So yeah. that's, that's really useful information. Um, thank you. Well, I will have that as a segue into other kinds of communication that we deal with um, mm -hmm. and that other people that I know deal with, but um, my son does speak. Um, part of his disability is um, uh, because of low muscle tone, there's speech impediment. And unfortunately, that has been a difficulty through the years where, you know, as he got old, it was cute when he got old, young, was younger, but as kids get older, we still have a speech impediment. Kids can not be very nice. So that's one, um, you know, that's a, one of the reasons why a lot of kids have speech impediments because they, uh, if they have low muscle tone, so, and their mouths, it's very hard to get the tongue to work properly. And there's so many muscles in the mouth that we, you know, discussed <laughs> in a previous episode. Um, it's really hard to, to enunciate in a way that one would expect from a teenager. So um, that's one challenge. Um, there's also, um, you know, with a lot of kids, um, there is, uh, with a lot of disabilities, there's a lack of a complete filter when talking about different subjects. So that's something that has been a real challenge for us as well. Um, and we're so grateful to people who, who, you know, who can, who know, and this, again, this is, this is me talking about an invisible disability. So people wouldn't necessarily know that there was anything up or anything different, but once somebody says something that, you know, is not typically heard, whether it's asking too personal a question, um, you know, when a kid is older, people might think it's rude or it's, um, it's inappropriate, but please, all of you out there listening, if you are not you know, if you do not have a child or are familiar with children who do not have a filter as a result of their disability, you know, as we always say, be kind, be compassionate, be patient, because this is where the invisible disability can really, um, we can get into some, some real problems. So 
there's one with the lack of filter, you know, and a lot of that has to do with um, asking too many questions, asking personal questions, and really out of a desire to learn. And, and you know, kids are curious. They want to they wanna know things, and they don't know where the line is, where that's, you know, too personal. Um, so that's one of the challenges we deal with. And, you know, there's there are lots of different ways to respond to that. One of the ways could be like, well, you know, with humor, like, oh, that's a little personal. I don't, you know, I don't know if I want to answer that question. Or, um, um, you know, I sort of step in sometimes and I'll ask, you know, and I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll be the one to say, you know, that's not a polite thing to ask someone. You might want to, you know, that's that's personal. Um, you know, I've had numerous occasions, you know, Iris and I were joking about it yesterday, about some of the incidents as we were preparing for this episode, <laughs> some of the situations we found ourselves in. Uh, one situation was um, uh, trying to, when things don't connect for Lincoln, sometimes um, he makes it very apparent that he doesn't understand what's going on and that can sometimes be a little offensive to the other person. So I will give you an example of what I'm talking about. We were um, talking to a woman who was probably in her maybe late fifties um, and she was trying to get to know Lincoln. She was interviewing him for something. And um, he was he was maybe about 11, maybe 10 or 11. And he, she's asking him all these questions and she says to him, is there anything you want to ask me? And Lincoln asked her to, if she had any children. And she said, yes. And he said, how old? And the woman said, six years old. And Lincoln, without missing a beat, <laughs> made a shocked face. If you're watching this, I'll make the face. <laughs> he he said, six, six from your belly? Because he saw that she, that she was in, probably in her late 50s. And he knew that people had children when they were typically when they were younger, when they were younger. So he was shocked that a woman in her late 50s would have a six-year-old. He had no filter. And again, he said, sex from your belly? And so she was in the awkward position of saying, well, actually, I adopted him. But it was horribly um, awkward for all of us. And um, these are some of the situations we get in where it's not that he's being, um, he just, he thought it was odd. And he was perfectly fine at making it clear that he thought it was odd. And that's not really socially acceptable. We also were, um, uh, when he was maybe around that same age, we were at a summer camp and there was someone there who was uh, trans and um, Lincoln, after a little while um, of getting to know her said, are you a boy or a girl? <laughs> because you have that thing in your neck and an Adam's apple. And I was mortified and um, I rushed in and I said, Lincoln, you, that's a personal question. And I later found out that, um, you know, I inquired about what the appropriate thing to do was in that situation, but I kind of felt the need to jump in and save everyone, but I didn't allow for the other person to 
express themselves, the, the person that Lincoln was talking with. And what she said was, I'm, I'm a girl, I'm a girl. Um, and so it was just an example of my need to kind of fix the situation, which I wanna add is a lot of pressure for parents of kids with disabilities, because I, you know, we are often in a position of being embarrassed by our children's form of communication. And as our kids get older, it, you know, it's a long time to be um, under a lot of pressure about our child's communication. You know, it's not just like when they're three years old or, you know, until they're four and they are five, but to be dealing with this as a teenager and this, you know, a preteen and even as an adult, it's, it's, it's hard. And I've, I personally have gotten less, I've gotten more hands off because honestly, if someone, I guess just one, I just don't have the, <laughs> I don't have the energy anymore to keep stepping in and trying to fix the situation. Yeah. But I also feel that if somebody is not going to be nice to him, they're not going to be nice to him, no matter what I say. So, you know, if it were something really egregious, I would probably step in. But another form of communication that he and a lot of kids who have autism um, have is um, asking the same question over and over again. And um, that is another area like I have to step in and say, okay, you already asked once, you know, you know, let them answer or they already gave you an answer. You don't need to ask the question again. But I've sort of stopped. Um, in a lot of those situations for those same reasons. One, I just don't have it in me. <laughs> I just don't have it in me anymore. And also that it's not so terrible. You know, it's not so terrible that he's asking the same question over and over again. And if somebody, you know, he, they can say, they can say to him, you know, okay, I already, you know, I, I already answered that question. You know, if they're not nice to him about that in their response, I will definitely step in. But he is who he is and he's going to have to talk to people in the community and, this is who he is and I can't contain him, you know, his, I can't, you know, I don't necessarily need to modify um, the way he communicates. That's a lot of it I realized over the years is really my issue. It's my feeling of um, feeling uncomfortable that yeah. people are going to know, people are going to know that he's different because I can't control for that. And I think that when I, when we as parents and when I have come to terms with the fact that that's who he is and we can't change it and there's nothing wrong with it, then it's easier for us to not step in with those kinds of situations. Yeah, I think that uh, for a lot of us, uh, you know, when we have young children and they ask us to read the same bed bedtime story time and time and time again, we have no problem doing that. We know that right. the child is gaining another perspective, learning a new word or something every time we repeat the same story. But when we have, you know, a person asking us the same question repetitively, we're kind of like, oh, I already answered. No, they're gaining something new every time mm -hmm. you repeat the same answer in a different yeah. kind of maybe word or angle. And it is important. And the the interesting thing about uh, about the repetition is that it's also very, very important in communication in general. If you are asking a question of a person that has some, some sort of speech impediment that you can't really understand, uh, or even like me with my accent, people don't always understand me first to first time around. 
just ask the person to repeat what they were saying. Again, that's really helpful. It shows mm-hmm. the person that you were listening, you were trying, yeah. but you didn't quite get maybe the essence of what they are saying. If they repeat the answer and you still don't understand, you can repeat to them what you think you heard, but you're mm-hmm. not sure. And then they'll be able maybe to focus on their one word that uh, was hard to understand. This is, this is important. And it's also yeah. important to remember that when you're uh, repeating the same answer to a person time and time again, it's because they might have a, maybe a cognitive disability that is preventing them from understanding you or a sensory disability that makes it hard to, to hear or process what you said. Sometimes it's a good uh, kind of method to suggest if it would be helpful if you write things down because some mm-hmm. pe- people process better when it's in writing rather than uh, by listening to you. So that's, that's another kind of uh, good way to, re- sorry, you want to say something? Yeah, no, I just I, I was just gonna I was waiting until you're done, but go ahead. Um, the idea of um, re- repetition is also letting it's another form of communication that is letting us know that they might need reassurance that they there might be some anxiety behind that, and that's really at the root of our child's repetition that oh, they want to make sure that this is going to happen so they keep asking over and over and over again so I love that you just brought up writing it down because that's something that we do um to you know if you have this question again here's the answer <laughs> so yeah, you know yeah. um because that can really affect that's a real issue for siblings as well to it can get very annoying and you know siblings can can get very intolerant of that um of being asked the same thing over and over again so um, you know, it brings up a sibling issue. So communication needs to happen there as well with us and the, and the siblings that, you know, they can't really help it, that this is part of, you know, something that they struggle with. But, you know, that happens with, you know, with Prader-Willi syndrome, there is a real anxiety around food. And for us, um, it's really important to have things written down about, you know, what's for dinner, you know, having a schedule so that they know exactly what is, um, going to be the menu for the week. So we write stuff down. We had a set menu for many, many years. So he always knew what was going to be for dinner. And it was a real, it calmed him down to just know what was coming. And that's true of neurotypical children as well. Um, they want to know if there's some security, some comfort in knowing what's coming next. And, um, especially for a lot of kids who have disabilities where they, you know, this anxiety is, is coming out through that those um, those forms of communication. So the repetition, um, the loud voice. Sometimes it's it comes across in a loud voice. Um, so these are all things that can be you know at least alleviated a little bit with with having something written down um, in some kind of a visual story or just you know written on a chalk. You can get a chalkboard that you erase or a. a what are those called? The marker boards, the whiteboards, yes. whiteboards. Is that what they're called? Yeah, whiteboards. Yeah. yeah. I think that uh, at the end of the day, um, our kids also sometimes the tonation, the not not just the volume, is a little bit off. And uh, mm-hmm. for children like my daughter that have a lot of like involuntary sounds that come out of them just by virtue of being excited or frightened. It's also something that people kind of find very confusing and hard to screen out. And uh, you add to this uh, all the abnormal movement. It's also, these are all kind of 
additional barriers in communication and uh, communicating with, with people in, in the store, on the street, in the library, in the farmer's market. It's kind of like a part of human nature. We are seeking we are, th those interactions. We are eager to kind of exchange information with one another. And it's very sad for us as parents to see that our kids are some, sometimes deprived this whole portion of being human, of being uh -huh. a, a citizen, as being part of the community, because people are just afraid to just approach them. And uh, my plea today to our listeners is just don't be afraid. Like, really, you might find someone who's worthy of your time behind yes. all of that uh, abnormal kind of uh, uh, movement, tonation, sounds, uh, whatever it is that you're kind of maybe afraid to approach because of the the end result is that also later on in life I, as i had the the privilege of working with the adults with disabilities as as a career counselor it is a serious serious barrier when those people have to go for an interview and they might be like really more than qualified in their fields and very good candidate the kind of the stigma the first appearances and how they are serious blockage to kind of passing an interview sometimes because the moment they walk in someone would assume okay with all of this abnormal movement the guy came here drunk <laughs> you know obviously like that this is a, this is one of those efforts i think that we in kind of our normal uh, or ableism uh, thinking we are like we're trying to put stickers on behaviors that we don't see on a day-to-day -day life but it's really hard and i can give you an example like one one um, girl that i worked with in the past had this problem with very droopy eyelids and she would go to interviews and the the important thing was obviously to work on the self-disclosure, like disclosing the disability right on the very first kind of few sentences of the interview. So people would like be put at ease and understand that she's not under the influence. She's not uh, super tired or like mm -hmm. out of it uh, kind of uh, emotionally yeah. in that interview. And it, and it is tricky it's a there is a lot to be done for the disability community in in the sense of communication and inclusion and i think that if you're brave enough to approach a little child whether it's in their wheelchair or a little child with a hearing impairment that you see that they have a sign language interpreter with them if you can brave that out you can later be able to be a friend and an ally to a coworker <laughs> that uh -huh. has a disability and uh, to a neighbor that is, uh, again, with a similar situation, it's just really helping you open your mind and open your experience to something new, something different. And that yeah. is beautiful. It is. It is. And the kids have to be exposed to other kids, like you said, in order to grow up and hire people who have disabilities, to befriend people who have disabilities. And everyone's life you know, can be much richer with dealing with people who are different. It, you know, everybody being the same is boring. You know, we don't want, nobody wants to find friends who are exactly like them. It's, it's boring. That's the spice of life to have everybody, you know, come to the table with different experiences and, and lives. Um, I wanted to just talk about a couple of other types of communication um, that, or, or the way that 
um, you know, disabilities can manifest via communication. Um, <clears throat> there are, sorry, hold up. <clears throat> um, there are kids who communicate with a lot of physicality. So again, this is cute when you have a little child who's running over and hugging people. But once that child turns 18, and especially if this is an invisible disability, and there is um, what's deemed inappropriate touch by an older child or, a, or an adult, this, this is really scary. And because people um, may not understand that this person is communicating that way and, and running over to hug people. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a real pressure for parents um, and people working with children who, who are so physical and so loving that they want, you know, they touch people, they see hair that looks soft and they want to touch it on someone else. And I've just heard so many stories about situations that have gone awry because older kids are doing this to other children or to, um, you know, as kids reach 18, this could actually be a legal issue. And, um, you know, we've, you know, my son, part of his communication is being provocative. If people are ignoring him and he feels excluded, he'll say something that's, you know, he's said things that are racially charged and sexually charged because he wants, that's his way of saying like, pay attention to me. And if they're not going to pay attention to me with the ways that I've been trying to talk to them, I'm going to say something shocking. Whereas other kids who are, you know, uh, uh, get to a certain age, they know that that is absolutely socially unacceptable. For people who have cognitive disabilities, that's something that takes a lot longer or may not ever um, occur. So it's really important that, again, we're, this, this episode really is for the allies, to, for people to talk to their kids about this, that when sometimes when kids say inappropriate things or things that are deemed inappropriate, it's really important to talk to the schools and whoever, you know, wherever the child is in the community, if it's a community center, you know, that could be the YMCA, it could be any of these places to talk to the staff about these attributes that your child might have um, and try to do discussions with the children together, maybe if that's, if that's a strategy to have the child with the disability understand that that's hurtful to someone else or that makes other people feel uncomfortable. And it's just, you know, again, these have to be dealt with with kid gloves and with compassion because all too often, it's looked at as that's a, you know, that kid is a bad kid or that kid is, um, you know, shouldn't be here. And we really want to make all settings inclusive as much as we possibly can. And that comes with understanding. If we are in agreement that we want to have a place where anybody is welcome, we really all have to work together to understand why a child might be saying these kinds of things and not directly run to, they can't be here because yeah. they're comfortable. And I just, you know, I always want to say it's very hard for the other kids too. I don't want to uh, minimize or dismiss what the kids on the other end of these conversations go through because it can be traumatic for them as well. But 
um, if we start off, and again, this, this takes a lot of work. This isn't something that is going to change in a day, but kids need to be having these discussions in school, in settings where there are other children, way before these incidents occur, so that they know that kids, you know, their people are different and people have challenges and how to deal with them. So that's, you know, it, it, it because it's painful for everyone involved, typical kids and uh, you know, kids who, who have challenges, but it can become a legal issue and a very serious dangerous issue as the kids get older if everyone's not on the same page or at least understanding what's going on to cause these, these things being said or being done if it's a physical, if it's a physical, um, you know, I don't wanna say accusation, but if yeah. someone has been physical with, with, a, with someone else. But this is, again, why inclusion is so important. And kids with disabilities should be included and kids without disabilities should always be exposed to a variety of children with a variety of disabilities. If we want to have the citizens of tomorrow, kind of the adults that would be the police officers and the uh, salespersons in the supermarket, if we want them to be aware, they need to be exposed to this from mm -hmm. three years old and up, right? right? We need them to be aware to kind of recognize the characteristic to be able to see that if a person is not responding to you stop or i'll shoot there might be something else and because we've seen some really yes. cruel horrible incidents uh, here that happen to people with developmental disabilities and it's only because of lack of education and lack of exposure of the on the side of you know the service providers and uh, you know yeah. the police in that case is a service provider that uh, absolutely you know, there needs it, to be training there, there needs, needs to be a to be, lot of training. But no training can compensate to sitting in the same classroom, to going to the same uh, community center, to mm -hmm. being exposed in the parks, in the, uh, I guess, uh, 4th of July events, in everywhere you go to people yes. with disabilities. As long as there is no access to, I guess, people that are using wheelchair, as long as there is no accommodations for uh, kids with autism to make it easier for them to attend, as long as we don't include all the different facades of people that want to be included but but can't, we, have, we, we would continue this cycle of lack of awareness and lack of consideration. This is why I always say that our almost like social duty as parents is to go out with our kids. And it, it is hard and sometimes really society rubs us the wrong way, but we have to kind of like do it. We have to be out there. We have to increase awareness and we have to make an effort to, you know, bring in other people to our lives and be exposed to us because we are creating a better future for our children that way. It's true. And I, you know, and I don't want to close this episode without um, touching on the, on the subject of um, uh, people of color who have disabilities because it is, the statistics are higher for people who um, the police go after and um, who are, um, for example, someone who you just mentioned, Iris, um, if someone is told to stop by a police officer and they start running, that might be someone who has a disability, a cognitive disability, and that's their fight or flight reaction. They run off and then they can, you know, this, these people are getting shot, they're getting attacked, um, and 
there isn't the understanding that this might be a person who is not capable or has difficulty understanding what to do in those kinds of situations. And unfortunately, people of color uh, deal with this a lot more. And it's something that that really needs to end. We've seen this in the news, you know, more and more, but it needs to stop happening. There needs to be, you know, training by all sorts of community members dealing with the public because people with disabilities are here to stay. Like they're not going anywhere. And um, people need to be, you know, they may not still be sitting, have the, having the opportunity to sit next to someone in a classroom because they're older and in these positions of power and with guns. So it's extra important that um, that all organizations have training on, on disability. There's actually something, a great story that I just want to tell in Montclair, how um, a woman who was on the People with Disabilities community, uh, Committee in Montclair for the town had a daughter who um, had Rett syndrome and her body movements when she walked down the street, um, assisted by her mother, she was an adult, but the way she walked to an onlooker, it looked like she was drunk because they didn't have the experience of seeing people, you know, with, they, they didn't even consider that she might have a disability. And a police officer screamed out, you know, you know, she shouldn't be drunk. She shouldn't be screaming to the, to the mother. So you can imagine how um, painful that must have been for the mom of an adult with a disability who's just walking down the street being yelled at by a police officer. Um, so because of that incident, the mom um, made a point of having the all the police officers in our town and maybe the fire department too, uh, trained in just disability and how people can present differently um, if they have a disability and to really make them you know, conscious of, of the differences because that caused a, you know, I can't even imagine what that experience was like for her. But instead of sitting there wallowing in it, she she took so, you know, she took action and she made a point of making sure that that our town had this training. And I hope it's still going on today. I'm going to look into that, make sure it's still, the training is still going on, but I think it is. Yeah. And I want to kind of maybe summarize this and just say, thank you to all the people that approach our children, to all mm -hmm. the people that take the time, that ignore the insults sometimes, that do consider bending over to be at the same eye level with a child in a wheelchair or an adult with a wheelchair, that, uh, that care enough to listen to this whole episode and would consider approaching uh, our children in the future, whether it's in a community event or just, I don't know, in the supermarket. Thank you, because it means the world. Yes, thank you. There are so many people who are so patient. And as parents, I can just speak for myself. I'm so grateful when people sit there and they they allow for the, the incessant questioning and the, <laughs> <laughs> the interviews. So <laughs> it's really, it's, it, it means the world to, to have people who get it and to, 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 to step back and have that patience. So on that note, anything else to cover, Iris? Or no, the, the usual, just really please do share uh, your experiences interacting with people with disabilities and, uh, and children with disabilities and your experience being with your child and having interactions go well, go wrong. What can we learn from your experience? Please Take do share. Risk. Yep. Take a risk. All right. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Iris. 
For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.